they they always have a special campfire that is devoted to presenting the gospel and giving an invitation. And that Wednesday night, I I met a savior that welcomed me with open arms, that offered me safety in a way that I had never experienced. Um, and it was a very, for, for me, this isn't true for everyone, but for me, it was a very visceral experience yeah. um, that that changed me, changed how, how I find myself and feel myself in the world from that moment forward. Mm. Um, and in a lot of ways, kind of saved my life. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Communitas podcast, and I am so excited uh, to be joined today with an old, old friend uh, and just an amazing woman who's got some incredible stories. So I'll introduce you now to Gigi, and Gigi, tell us a little about yourself, or you can open up by uh, letting people know one of my secrets, because you've known me a long time. So. <laughs> What's up, family? My name is Gigi Kanyezi, and it is such a treat to be with you all today. Um, well, I will I will first say that um, on a more lighthearted note, I don't ever call Jeff Jeff. That's right. What do you <laughs> call people, me? I call you Big G because I'm Lil G. Little G, that's right. <laughs> so we go way back because uh, when I was in high school, our paths crossed providentially at a time that... Um, I had nowhere to live the year before the summer before my senior year in high school. And um, Jeff and his wife, Christy, um, so graciously opened their home to little 17 year old me, um, who they barely knew at the time. Uh, and it turned out to be just a turning point in my life um, in some really significant ways. So our history goes way back. He is much more family than he is friend or colleague even. Um, so to me, he's big G. Right on, little G. Appreciate that. <laughs> uh, and also, I mean, we'll get to this too, but uh, during COVID, I participated in a, a program, a cohort that you put on, and it was life-changing for me. And we'll get to that a little bit later, but uh, Jesus and Justice, and I was thrown in a cohort. I was the only male, um, and there were more people of color in the group uh, than not, which was just awesome to make new connections, learn a ton, uh, have my eyes open in a number of ways. So uh, we'll get to covering that. But that's just one of dozens of things that you're engaged in, Gigi. I know, tell us, you're you're getting your doctorate right now. Is that right? Yeah, um, Lord willing, I'll be, I'll be graduating in May um, with my doctor of ministry in healing racial trauma from Howard University School of Divinity. Wow. Um, and it has been, when I tell you, life-changing. I mean, I, I did not intend to go for any future further education past my MDiv, which was many years ago now. Yeah. Um, but when I came back from 10 years in the motherland in Soweto, South Africa, um, as I began to process the last 20 plus years of being on the front lines of racial justice and justice in general and healing, um, I just started to process kind of what what am I made for really? What am I called to? And it began to really crystallize as I was processing my 10 years overseas. Um, and I realized in order to fully authentically be who I was made to be on this planet, 
I needed a structured program with further teaching, further mentorship. Um, and when I did, when I realized that, I knew that uh, there was there was only one answer to that, and it was going to be an HBCU seminary. Yeah, good. Um, black black uh, liberation theology, black theology, and theology from the margins has always been, um, or at least in my previous degree, it was my side hustle because it had to be right. There was no mainstream of that. Um, and so I found ways to incorporate it. But if, if at this stage in my life, I'm going to go back to that level of training. Oh no, it needs to be mainstream thought, not my side hustle. <laughs> right on. Good for yeah. you. Good for you. I'm so excited for that. And so proud of you to do that, you know, midlife and uh, yeah, going back to school and all that. It's just, it's just it, great. It has been so life-changing and, and life-giving. And I will say that um, what I they have allowed me to do an interdisciplinary program, which which they don't normally do. Um, so I'm 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 intersecting a justice-centered theology at the core of that is Brown Jesus with the healing of intergenerational collective racial trauma mm. in the context of beloved community. Wow. That's Great. the heart and soul of it. How do we create faith communities where we heal so that we can be effective in our pressing toward justice? Wow. Okay. I want to explore that a lot more. Um, how about if you, you know, give us just a little bit of your 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 history, your itinerary growing up, your story, uh, maybe some of your education before uh, you were doing your doctorate? Yeah. Um, so my story actually starts before I was born because it, it became so formative by the time I showed up on the scene, right? So so my dad was born and raised in Brazil. So mm -hmm. he immigrated to the United States. Um, my mother was a different kind of immigrant. She grew up Amish and left the Amish community at 21. Yeah. Um, and so very much similar dynamics to an immigrant because she didn't know how the world worked at all mm -hmm. um, in mainstream society. Um, and so I'm half Brazilian brown and half Amish white and grew up in East Oakland, a predominantly black neighborhood. Right. <laughs> um, and, and that combination and particularly my neighborhood in East Oakland uh, was very formative to the, the human that I've become, um, how I show up in the world, how I navigate the world. I mean, so anyone who knows East Oakland can pick me out of a crowd <laughs> just by my mannerisms, my humor, um, things like that. They'll be like, oh gosh, that's O. There's the O. <laughs> the O's in the room <laughs> without knowing me, right? Um, so interestingly, growing up in that environment, right, predominantly Black neighborhood, I, I was embraced as one of us mm. in our community. Um, and so that's how I was that's how I grew up, really. And my my community really was my family. And then at 12 years old, now keep in mind, by the time I was 12, I was kind of 12 going on 21. Yes. In were. some ways, yeah, right. In some ways, when you grow up in that kind of neighborhood, um, you're forced to grow up fast. You're forced to mature more quickly than the average. Um, and so I I was already, by the time I was 11 and 12, I was very passionate and outspoken about justice, about race, about social dynamics. Um, and that same year at 12, um, I actually had my first glimpse of the apartheid system in South Africa, mm. because that's when I saw Mandela released from prison on TV. Right. Also that year, my family split up. My my dad and my brother stayed in Oakland. My mother moved her and I to a city. It was only 12 miles away, but it might as well have been another planet. Mm -hmm. 
a place called Castro Valley. And it was at that time uh, about 99% white. Yeah. And when I started at the local high school, um, I found out very quickly, as in the third day of school, that it was filled with the KKK. Mm. Um, throughout my whole high school career, probably two to three times a year, we would come to school and find KKK spray painted in red all over the school. Wow. Um, and one of my close friends when I was 16 was actually murdered in a racialized incident, the first homicide in Little League history. It happened at a baseball game. Um, and so I went from extremely diverse, one of us, Black neighborhood in East Oakland, to clearly one of them right. in Castro Valley. Enough to be heckled and sometimes harassed by the KKK. Right. Also at 12 years old, so <laughs> pivotal year, is when I met Jesus. Right on. So a lot of people probably know the Amish community is very grounded in faith. The whole lifestyle is grounded in, in a faith in Jesus. Um, however, because of the really the wounds that my mom experienced growing up in that community um, and in her home in particular, um, she, we, my brother and I weren't raised um, in a way that was very faith centered. We mm -hmm. went to a Catholic church for when I was very young because my dad grew up in a Catholic country. So we did it more as a cultural thing. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't raised with a particular, in a, in a faith centered way in any way. Um, and when I was 12, I went to camp. I went from East Oakland to the Santa Cruz mountains mm -hmm. to a camp called Frontier Ranch. And um, one evening, every night we would have campfire and there's usually like 150 kids each week at camp. Um, you, you just go for one week up in the mountains. And on the Wednesday night, they, they always have a special campfire that is devoted to presenting the gospel and giving an invitation. And that Wednesday night, I, I met a savior that welcomed me with open arms hmm. that offered me safety in a way that I had never experienced. Um, and it was a very firm for me, this isn't true for everyone, but for me, it was a very visceral experience yeah. um, that, that changed me changed how how I find myself and feel myself in the world from that moment forward. Hmm. Um, and in a lot of ways, kind of saved my life. <laughs> right. Oh, so many questions on that. Uh, I don't want to get you off the plan. Let's let's get, take us through like college and then seminary and then Soweto. Yeah. So um, after I met Jesus at 12, um, that summer camp connected me with a church that they knew of in Oakland. And so um, I started going to church by myself um, because my family was not practicing any form of, you know, religious practice at the time. So I went to church alone for a bunch of years um, and got immersed in the, the junior high group and then the high school group. Um, and right away started going on uh, mission trips with, with our high school group. And um, we were a very serving oriented, very connected to the community, kind of a, a youth group, um, youth ministry. Um, and so I took multiple trips to Mexico and to other places um, just to serve. And at such a young age, um, that opened my eyes to a world beyond the U.S. borders, mm. right? Um, now, keep in mind, that was happening while I was living on another planet. <laughs> right. That was 99% white, full of the KKK, where I was them. Right. Yep. Um, and so every Sunday and 
Tuesday nights and usually at least two other nights a week, I was driving from the other planets back to East Oakland because that's where I was at home. That's where I was safe, right? So by the time I went to college, um, I also played volleyball in high school um, and ended up playing in college as, as, as well at UC Davis. <clears throat> and by the time I got to college, um, pause for a minute. It was right before I went to college when I lived with Jeff and Christy. Yep. That was my transition into college. It was transitioning from their home into my dorm room, um, which was such a providential gift. Anyhow, by the time I got to college, I had a pretty clear sense that I was at least in part made to be um, an advocate and a bridge mm. where it comes to at the time I called it racial reconciliation. I don't use that term anymore, yeah. um, which we can get into if you want to. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah I, I knew that I was called to racial justice, racial healing, um, the the bridging of the divide and, and uh, being a voice for the voiceless and trying to change the systems that made them voiceless to begin with. Um, so as a result of that, in college, my undergrad, I studied sociology and African and African-American studies. <clears throat> um, and in a lot of ways, I, I, I found myself in the pages of those books and I found myself um, in those classes and in my fellow students. Um, I also sang in the UC Davis Gospel Choir. Yes, you which did. Was, was which awesome. was it, yep, you guys came and yep. heard us sing. It, it was, it was, that was my East Oakland. That was home for me, uh, uh. right? In a predominantly white um, institution as a brown woman growing up in a black neighborhood. Um, that gospel choir was absolutely my home. Um, that was my taste of home uh, at UC Davis. So on one hand, I was, I was deeply immersed in the gospel choir, which was almost completely black. Um and became a student leader there. And on the other side, I was also, um, I helped I helped pioneer a student ministry um, with a small team of people that was almost entirely white. <laughs> and my whole four and a half years in college was, was or maybe I should say like the, the second, the last three and a half years of college, trying to bridge the two. And how do we bridge this divide? And why is this divide so thick? And why are your blind spots so big over here on this side? Yeah. <laughs> why are you unable to hear and to listen? Why, why do we not see ourselves on the pages of the Bible that you are reading? Hmm. You are preaching. Why, why are we not hearing our stories in your Bible? But I see my story in the Bible, but hmm. I'm not hearing it from you, right? So all these layered dynamics. Um, and I would say... At the tail end of, um, I mean, our student ministry exploded. It went from like 20 students to 250 wow. um, in a year's time. Um, but I will say that by the end of, of my college career, that is when I had the hard, hard lesson of realizing that being on the front lines of this kind of ministry where you're, where you're committed to empowering and centering marginalized voices, what it will cost you. Some of the relationships that I trusted the most, that I treasured like family, um, where the rubber meets the road and race came up, I lost them. Hmm. I was invited my senior year to to preach a two-part series um, in the large group, and I did a two-part series on race and the gospel. Um, and it caused such a conflict um, that I, I lost my key relationships and eventually ended up leaving the ministry. 
I, I got a lot of questions, but let's keep let's keep going because it's 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 getting more interesting. I know yeah. as as we as we move forward in the timeline a little bit. So bring us a little forward. Yeah. So um, I spent after college, I spent um, a few years um, partially or the first first year or two in a special needs ministry. So I was working with severely autistic children. Um, and then after that, I launched into my first time in full time ministry, like professionally in ministry, um, doing, I mean, something that I absolutely loved. And it was doing a full time discipleship program, um, like helping run it um, that that centered both discipleship and teaching with the performing arts. Mm, and right. we use the like training students in the performing arts um, as a way to train them in ministry, but also as a way to open up God's word and um, and pr- biblical principles. Um, and then we took it on the road and traveled and ministered. And um, and it, it was fantastic. And it was during that time that um, I realized because I was at that stage, I was preaching very regularly um, and teaching. And it just something awakened in me every time I found myself in front of people speaking particularly about justice and God's word. And so um, even though I said I would never go to seminary for a whole host of reasons, I ended up going to seminary. (laughs) (laughs) And Denver Seminary, no less. Yes, I ended up, so I relocated to Denver. Um, I did a master's of divinity with an emphasis in intercultural ministry. And um, the reason I chose intercultural ministry was because it was the closest I could come to anything related to race or justice. Um, There wasn't anything related to race or justice uh, when I came. However, before I left, I actually started the process of creating a new master's program um, in social justice, and it is still there today, right. many years later. Um, but my my years at seminary, um, I actually started in the counseling licensure program because mental health is such a passion of mine. Um, and I had worked in mental health for a while by the time I got there. Um, and I loved the, the, the counseling program. I absolutely loved it. However, my first taste of theology classes, oh God, <laughs> I, I couldn't get enough of them. I, I could not, I'll never forget my my first semester of my first year at seminary. I had 8 a.m. class and 10 a.m. back to back. 8 a.m. was intro to Old Testament, Dr. Rick Hess. 10 a.m. was intro to New Testament, Dr. Craig Blomberg. <laughs> and they are two like kind of legends in, in those fields. So um, it just, it rocked my world. And at the end of my first year, even though I had finished almost half of a master's in counseling licensure, I switched to the MDiv. Um, also during my second year, I ended up, which was not exactly planned on my part, I ended up serving as student body president. Hmm. And um, here is where entering seminary is where I really acutely experienced gender dynamics or, or in, in the church for the first time. Okay. Um, not not that I didn't experience it growing up in the church. I did in the sense that I never saw a woman preach in our church, hmm. the church I was growing up in. Um, the church that I was in in college, also, I never saw a woman preach in our church. Um, but in terms of real oppressive engagement, things like that, I, I hadn't really experienced that. Um but then I got to seminary and the faculty was wonderful. Faculty was wonderful. Um, but some of the students, you know, I, as an MDiv student, I was often one of the only or sometimes the only woman in a class. And sometimes I was the only woman and the only person of color in the class as well. So my second year, I served as student body president. And I didn't know this at the time, but it turned out I was the first woman student body president to ever serve at Denver Seminary. Yeah. Um, and so <clears throat> I'll, I'll never I'll never forget some of the, the 
you know, snide remarks and commentary that I got from, from male fellow students, um, not just as a student body president, but just as a woman, for instance, in a preaching class. Mm-hmm. Um, the snide remarks I would get about, you know, women are supposed to be quiet in the church. Um, right. And then chuckle and cackle as if it was funny. Um, and a woman in that space does not find that funny. Um, so in during my years in seminary, I, I was I was in many cases the token on both fronts, race and gender. Mm. And so I I was actively resisting um a system that was built for white men as a brown woman. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. How how did that experience shape you for the 10 years that followed? <laughs> oh, that's such a great question. You know, the, the, first of all, my experience at Denver seminary was not all bad. So I don't want to sound like that. Um, sure. it, it was, it was in many ways, very transformative and a certain few professors in particular were made it very transformative for me. <clears throat> um, but I would say that those experiences happened in the context of a very oppressive system Hmm. that was just designed to be that way. Um, The first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is um, actually in what ways did it not prepare me (laughs) to go to South Africa, just to be honest with you. Um, Because I don't know if if anyone on here has heard of a book by um, Angela Parker. Um, Oh gosh. I think it's called um, if God can't breathe. God can breathe. Why can't I? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it came out just last year. It is so good. It's 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 on the topic of inerrancy, and I promise you, before I even got to page one, I was already hollering. You want to know why? Yes, please. <laughs> because the table of contents, just the table of contents. One of her chapter titles. I'm going to paraphrase here, but one of her chapter titles is. They're training me to be a white man preacher. And she's a uh, black woman. Yeah. She's a black woman um, and a womanist theologian at that. Um, and her chapter title is that there, there is something like um, they're training me to be a white man preacher. And I nearly fell out of my chair because I was like, she just captured in one phrase what I experienced for five years of seminary. Right. <laughs> um, and it's not that the training was bad. A lot of it. I mean, it, it was good. It was just very incomplete. It was very incomplete and it was preparing me to minister in white suburbs. And not only is that not where I'm from, but it was also not where I was headed. Um, And it's not who I am, you know, so a lot, I mean, the biggest reason why I chose to serve um, in student council in the ways that I did was so that I could have access to bring real change so that my voice could be more than just um, of one, one voice in the masses, you know, um, so that I could actually do something about it. <clears throat> Good. Yeah. So I would say, um, there was a, there was a lot that it did not prepare me for in terms of ser- serving overseas. Um, and, and, you know, I think when, a lot of times when we talk about our theologies and our doctrines, um, and sometimes we have these, or often we have these, these deep, like discussions around debates around a particular theological topic, like for instance, women in ministry. And we go to this verse over here when we pick it apart and we go to the grammar and we go to the history. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. Yeah. 
look, I love doing that. Greek and Hebrew were two of my favorite classes. But what I am saying is, if you don't address the way you read scripture as a whole, the starting point needs to change. Amen. Just wrestling with the grammar is not enough. Right. Good. Where are you starting from? Yeah. Yeah, really good. So what I found was that I went to seminary and I learned lots and lots and lots of information. Um, but it was essentially, and the gospel was birthed in the motherland. Hello, somebody. The gospel started in Africa, right? If we're talking geography here um, and we're talking people groups here. Um, so what we have in Western white supremacist Christianity, which is the Christianity we've inherited, um, the gospel message has been reinterpreted to become a colonizing white supremacist gospel. So what I had to do once I arrived in South Africa, I'm fast forwarding a little bit here, is I had to do the work of translating it back to what it originally was. Yeah. And and the, the way that I did that was I, I immersed myself in the culture because the culture there, and, and let me pause here and say, there is not one culture in Africa. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. There, there are tens of thousands of cultures. There are tens of thousands of languages, tens of thousands of people groups in Africa. So, um, but, but in general, African communities and more specifically the one that I was immersed in, um, it is, it is so far closer to the culture of old Testament and first century that the new Testament was written in. Um, and so just being immersed in that community, in those values, in those priorities, in that worldview, um, it slowly shifted. And it wasn't so much that people were teaching me things about the culture. They were, and they were absolutely necessary for me to learn. Um, but it, the most significant shifts that happened for me were the things that that shifted by osmosis just by being with them, being in the community, being in the streets with the people, serving and how how we as a community we prepare for funerals when someone has died. Um, it's totally the antithesis of what we do here, um, because it is so relationally centered. It is so community focused, and that is what Hebrew culture and first century Jewish culture was as well. Sure, yeah, um, that's good. So I, I had to take a lot of what I learned in seminary, um, and like I said, it wasn't it wasn't all for naught. I gained a lot. Um, a lot of hermeneutical tools and ways to interpret scripture, um, a lot of the historical background. And there's, there's a lot that I learned, but I had to reframe all of it. Basically I had to decolonize it because mainstream Christianity in the West, um, particularly in white spaces, but, but even in, in people of color spaces too, we we've inherited a, a version of Christianity that was, and, and this is historical fact. This is not my conjecture. Um, if you haven't read the color of compromise by Jamar Tisby, I highly encourage everyone listening to read that book. We'll put um, that in the show notes folks. Yes. So the, the Christianity we've inherited that has become what is normal to us was a, a distortion of what used to be a Christianity um, and it was distorted for the sake of condoning the enslaving of black bodies and the exploiting and the near genocide of indigenous bodies. Yep. We know that as historical fact. Um, and so unless we are intentional about doing the work to decolonize how we read scripture, 
and then how it informs how we do ministry and how we even exist in the world. We are actually perpetuating the colonizing of more people, but we're doing it in the name of Jesus, who was actually a brown skin liberator. There you go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, uh, I just interrupt here with, with a couple of thoughts and a question. Uh, the, the academy, I agree, I'm I'm completely with you. My years in the academy uh, were life changing and eye opening um, in so many ways. But the academy did not then and still is wrestling today with preparing people for an actual life on mission, especially right. cross culturally. Yes. Um, so I love what you said about you know, getting to Soweto and engaging in the community, you know, in Communitas, we call that embedding. Yes. And it can take years and yes. years. But, and but it did. It, and it did, right? And mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, there's no, there's no quick fix, you know, follow this three-step formula to start a small group in whatever major city somewhere in the world. Um, it just does not work that way. And I, and I think a lot of people, who have aspirations to serve in mission or even to church plant, you know, get this mixed up understanding of, of what they think that is. And when they get into it, that's when their lives are transformed. Uh, And sometimes whole communities are transformed because they realize somewhere in the process that they're doing it all wrong. (laughs) That is exactly right. You know, you, you make me think of a story. Um, all the years that I was in Soweto, um, I I did a lot of work with vulnerable children. Yeah. Um, and there was a children's home in deep Soweto um, that I spent lots of time at. And it was actually just a four-bedroom little house in deep Soweto that had been 35 years before I got there, transformed by a woman and her husband, her husband was a pastor, into a children's home. And at any given time over 30 years, there could be anywhere from 30 to 50 kids there wow. in a in a four-bedroom home. Um, so I spent a lot of time there. And about maybe, I think it was about four years in, um, four years into being in Soweto and being in relationship with this community um, and with this children's home and their leadership and all the kids, um, I I helped host a a youth group from the United States. Hmm. Um, And um, what I gave them was not what they were expecting. (laughs) I bet. Um, So the second day that they were, that they were with uh, with me, um, with us, the second day that they were with us, um, I, I, and this was all with the permission and, you know, the, there's a lot of layered nuances here about whether or not you even want to bring a foreign group into a children's home. So that has to be wrestled with. There are ethical things. There are the psychological impact. It is not, it, it was never something that I would do regularly. I would never have done it regularly. It's not healthy for kids. Um, um, and in some ways, unless you present it in a very decolonized way, it's also not healthy for for the mission team either. Um, So anyhow, all that to say, with the permission of the leadership at the the children's home, um, and we had lots of discussion beforehand um, to make sure that that it was, you know, in the interest of the kids and whatnot, um, I showed up there with with a a group of these these teenagers, all of which were white, um, very good-hearted and um, well-intentioned. And, you know, 
I think the expectation, which I, I knew it would be, because I, I was also a high schooler going on mission trips, by the way. Right. I was a high schooler going on mission trips and no one taught me to decolonize, but I knew as a brown kid growing up, growing up in East Oakland and watching white folk roll up from the leafy suburbs, you know, trying to do whatever charity or whatever they want to consider. And it just, it made me feel cheap mm. as a brown child in East Oakland. It made me feel cheap. Um, and so I at least had that foundation, but no one helped us as teenagers decolonize a bunch of American students and the power dynamics that come right. with being Americans and some of us white, um, I, not me, but some of us in the group white and going into a space that is entirely poor and entirely brown. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, I knew that their expectation was, oh, we're going to children's home. We're going to play with babies all day. <laughs> we did some of that, but it wasn't until way later. We rocked up and um, I broke them into groups of three and gave them assignments. And um, each one of those three groups had had assignments that was not what they expected. Yeah. And each of those groups had at least one, usually two or three of the older kids from the children's home teaching them how to do it. Oh, that's great. So they were being taught by local children. Children. Um, and I will never forget out of those groups of three high school students, all white from the United States, one of those groups. So, so in Soweto, nobody has washing machines. Hardly anyone has dryers either. Um, so all the clothes are washed by hand. You're talking about 40 kids in a four bedroom house with only a couple of adults. The clothes got to get washed. Mm -hmm. And so one of those teams of three white high school American students, um, I wish. I, I I wish I could show you the looks on their faces. I bet. <laughs> when I said you're going to be washing clothes, and it was outside in behind the house where the water spigot is, and there's a a cement little tub where they scrubbed, and um and the the young people that the kids that live in the children's home taught them how to do it, but they didn't teach them by doing it for them. Hmm. They taught them, and these students did it themselves. And when I tell you for all the rest of the years that I was in Soweto, people talked about the time Abelungu, that means white people in Zulu, mm -hmm. the time that the white people came and washed our clothes by hand. That spoke gospel more than anything words could have ever taught. Right. Hands down, period. Huh. Right. Right on. That's very cool. Thank you for sharing that that story. Um, I, I do have a question based on what you said earlier. You're a brown girl growing up in East Oakland, um, but East Oakland accepted you as community. Yes. They, they saw you as, uh, you were all seen as one, right? They accepted you as one. What happened in Soweto? Because that that must have been kind of a culture shock for you. So explain, explain that to us. Yeah. So in East Oakland, um, I was one of us Yeah. in our neighborhood, which, <clears throat> which was mostly black. I mean, they wrapped their arms around me and it was them. It was them. It was my community that taught me what it means to be brown in a world, in a society that is geared for white people to prosper. <clears throat> um, Going into Soweto, so by def, in South Africa, by definition, a township is 100% Black. And that's because townships were created during apartheid. Mm -hmm. 
during forced removals in the 40s and 50s, where Black South Africans were forcibly removed from the cities and the suburbs. They were not compensated for their land, their homes, their property, their belongings, nothing. And they were forced into these residential areas that the government set aside and build built terrible quality, tiny little, they call them uh, shoebox homes because they were so tiny that with no running water, no electricity, and no bathroom or toilets. Um, so that's how townships started. So to this day, townships are exclusively black. Um, <clears throat> so when I when I rocked up in Soweto, in terms of the racial dynamic, it wasn't anything different than what I grew up in. So in terms of that, I didn't feel uncomfortable at all. However, this was not East Oakland. Yeah. <laughs> and when I got there, it was only 14 years post-apartheid. It was only 14 years into democracy. And South Africa was and still is the second most racially polarized country in the world. So although I was very comfortable being the only person that looked like me in that space, um, that was not the case for my community. They were not comfortable with me being in their space. Um, and, and I don't say that as any fault of their own at all. Um, so in South Africa, in the cities, I'm viewed as colored, which is a whole racial group all in its own. In the township, I'm viewed as white. I mean, if there's one thing that exposes how asinine the myth of race is, hmm. it's someone like me who is racially ambiguous and you go one place and you're considered one race and you go somewhere else and you're considered another. It, it is subjective, right? right. It, is, it is, race is not based in fact. It is all based in myth. Um, yeah, social construct is what we call that. Um, so anyhow, my my community, the although I am brown complected, unfortunately, the 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 small percentage, the three percent of South Africa that is white of Dutch descent, some of them are very fair skinned, and some of them are olive skinned, huh. a little bit like me. Yeah. And so not only was I viewed as white, but by appearances, I was viewed as an Afrikaner. Of course, until I spoke, because I don't have an Afrikaans accent. Right. Um, but the Afrikaners are the ones who created apartheid. Right. So, so the the distrust was so deep in a way that I can't even. There aren't even words to articulate. Over the first two years that I was there, um, I mean, as prepared as someone could possibly be going into a country, I was. There are some things that you just can't be prepared for. That nothing will prepare you except right. getting there. <laughs> Yep. And living there, right? Um, but what I was not prepared for at all was that I, I would be viewed as white. I, I I had no idea that I would be viewed as white in my community. Um, and that had a lot of implications. And I, I knew already, even before that, I knew that probably the most important thing that I, the most important role I can play in community is just building relationships. Yeah. I know that they have never lived anywhere near someone that looks like me in their own communities, right? Um, and the thing is, what I realized as the months went by was that I was regarded as white everywhere I went in Soweto. And, you know, the one of the first Zulu phrases that I learned um, was as a result of I was purposely taking public transportation so that I could get to know the community right. and, and people and culture and language and all that. Um, and it's not a bus system, y'all. It's, it's, it's like, they, they call them taxis, but they're not, they're like, um, what we would call a van. 
Um, but a lot of them are really broken down. And, you know, people that take public taxis are, are people that are um, in the lowest, mostly in, in the lowest, you know, economic categories of society. And so um, I, I was taking these taxis and, and the phrase almost without fail that I would hear as soon as I got in would be, <laughs> so after like the third or fourth time I heard it, I went to one of the locals that I knew and I was like, what does this mean? And they laughed. They said, it means, dude, who is this white person? (laughs) (laughs) And so um, for the first two years I was there, every time someone referred to me as white, I would actually go into this whole explanation of actually, I'm not not white. Um, And I would explain my dad's from Brazil. In the U.S., I've never been racialized as white. I grew up in an inner city. I, you know, um, and being white in South Africa, especially in a township context, it's not just what you look like. It's it's all the assumptions that come along with it, because the vast majority of white folks in South Africa are wealthy. Almost all of them have um, what we would call like servants domestic workers, gardeners, security guards, um, all of them are black and almost none of them make a living wage. And that's just generally acceptable in South African society. Um, And so the assumption with looking how I look and being white, assuming that I'm white, is is that I grew up in this certain way with all this privilege and had servants in my house. And look here, growing up in East Oakland, I had no such thing. Yeah. And so I thought... If I can explain who I actually am, it will build trust because they'll realize that there are some similarities in our experiences. Um, and so every time someone would refer to me as umlungu, both people I knew and people I didn't know, I would explain, I mean, I'm not, I'm not white. I grew up here and my dad's from here and I've never been racialized as white. And my whole life has been on the front lines of racial justice and blah, 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 blah. And I'll tell you what, after two years, just all these relationships that I had been investing and investing, they were still an inch deep. Hmm. And I I couldn't figure out why I, it was, I was not able to um, embed myself in the community the way that was my mission was, was my heart's desire in relationship first before anything I do in the community relationships come first and I promise you, one night, it also left me feeling very alone, very isolated. Right. Two years in, one night, I was literally on my face before the Lord, crying out to God, like, no one sees me. I, I have never had the kind of privilege that they assume that I have. I'm not the person that they think I am. No, I can't build relationship because they think I'm something I'm not. They're regarding me as someone who is a part of the system that oppresses them. Mm. Um, How am I supposed to do this? And in my mind, there was just, my body just felt this hopelessness. Like, because I intended to stay there forever. I didn't intend to come back. And in my body, it was like, is this what I have to live with the rest of my life? No one sees me. And I tell you what, I found myself that night in Isaiah 53. And that thing broke me wide open. Hmm. When it talks about the suffering of Jesus, and in particular, the verse that just split my soul open was talking about how he was regarded as a transgressor. He was Hmm. regarded as a sinner. 
but we know that he wasn't a sinner. So in other words, he was believed, he was treated like something he wasn't. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I lamented through my whole 10 years in South Africa is that there wasn't anyone who was doing what I was doing. The, the townships are, are very stereotyped and stigmatized and people who come from overseas to do ministry, none of them go to the townships in general, hardly any of them go into the townships, especially not to live. You know, they might go for a day trip or they might go whatever, but definitely not to live. So there was no handbook. There was not a person to call and say, hey, you know, when this happens, what did you do? When they said this, what did you do? What, how did you, you know, there was no one to call. There was no precedent. And when I got split wide open by Isaiah 53, I realized there is a precedent. Hmm. It was Jesus himself. He was regarded as something he wasn't. And he did not show up explaining to everyone, no, but I'm actually not a sinner. I was, I'm only half um, human. I'm the other half God, you know, like he didn't show up explaining to people how he wasn't what they said he was because he had a greater purpose. He had a greater purpose. Um, and, And as I chewed on that, it was like Holy Spirit it was like scales fell from my eyes. Hmm. And it was like, as I lamented, they see me as white. God was like, that's the whole point. Hmm. You at your core are not, you know what it is to be marginalized and oppressed and hassled by the KKK and have your life threatened and live in East Oakland. You know that experience as a brown person. And now you're regarded as white. That's part of the whole point Hmm. to be, to be a part of this community in a way that is healing. Um, And it was at that point that I realized, actually, if I have any hope of becoming embedded in this community, the way that I feel I was, I came here to be, I have to fully accept my whiteness. I have to come to be at peace with myself. So all the things that I had already spent years training white communities and white people not to do, don't take up all the space. Don't make everything about you. I had been doing, (laughs) I had been doing them, but I didn't realize it because I didn't see myself as white. Yeah. I thought that the more I showed, I was not what they thought I was. The more I tried to prove it, the more it would build trust. And it actually did exactly the opposite. It sabotaged it. Yeah. Um, and so my exhortate, my word of exhortation to foreigners in general going into other countries, but especially people racialized as white, is you, you've got to come to a place where you are at peace with yourself before you can be a peacemaker and a peace builder among other people. Good word. And so what that meant for me was coming into positioning myself internally and and showing up in the community in some ways as a baby, as a learner. I never been white a day in my life, so I need to learn. You know what I'm saying? And understanding I'm going to say the wrong things. With the best of intentions, I'm going to do the wrong things. Um, People are going to perceive things about me that aren't true um, and accepting it ahead of time so that I don't have to prove myself or justify or defend. Um, I've already accepted it. 
because I'm at peace with myself. And then all of a sudden, the gospel can come alive in the space. Because I was busy taking up all the space. Wasn't there room yeah. for Jesus? <laughs> wow, that is so good. That, that That is such a great word, I think, for so many people to hear, especially those that are considering going into the mission field in one form or another. But But even for those of us that have been serving in vocational ministry, you know, that that is just such an important lesson um, for everyone to learn, right? Yes. So. And it's, it's, it's a painful one. It's, it's taking the way of the cross. Yeah. Um, right. And, and believing that the cross always led to resurrection. Hmm. So life will come if you're willing to take up that cross. Life will come from it. Right. The mustard seed, the, the seed has to, the kernel of wheat has to fall to the ground and die first. Right. I had to die first. Yeah. Hmm. What an incredible lesson. Now, listen, I know that there's a lot more to your your life work in Soweto, but I, I, I want to cover a couple of things because I, I just think it'll be helpful for our audience um, to hear some of this. Um, f- first, big question is... Uh, being in an environment like that, where you were considered to be something you're not, in essence, um, and labeled, I'm hearing some some pretty big similarities, actually, with racial, I'll, I'll say the word conflict, with racial conflict here in the States. It, it, so there's an element of racial conflict that seems like it's... Um, it's not geography specific. It's it's almost like this this exists in this way regardless uh, of the various dynamics. It resists every or it exists everywhere. Yeah. So what did you learn that you brought back to the states, um, and and how is that informing the the work you're doing now? Yeah. Oh man, that's such a beautiful multi layered question. Um, um, the the very first thing that comes to mind as you ask me that is I came home with a very deep, visceral revelation that the whole Western world needs to be learning at the feet of the global majority. Mm. Wow. Especially the Western white church, Western white mission agencies. We need to be learning from the, the the global majority world theologians, pastors, um, community workers, single mothers. Um, we need to be at their feet. They are far nearer in in many ways um, to the text of scripture that we're, we're trying to understand. So if if we approach spaces and communities and people. <clears throat> Because we are the quote-unquote minister or the quote-unquote missionary, I personally didn't ever use the word missionary because it's so loaded. Sure. Um, But when we come with that feeling inside that we're supposed to come with all the answers, um, that that prevents trust from building. It it sabotages relationship and it sabotages trust. Um, So that, that theological, cultural humility, that 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 by itself is resistance. That is resistance Mm. to systems that oppress. Um, Being able to center marginalized voices and de-center whiteness Mm. um, is an absolute necessity 
if we want to be disciples and be disciplers um, of and for the brown-skinned healer that was Jesus, we have to constantly be doing our own work, our own internal work, um, and our own internal work in community. We we have to come to a place where um, where we we begin to recognize how much the Christianity that we've inherited has been distorted. Hmm. Um, and until we do that, we're just going to keep becoming mini colonizers without realizing it. Right. Yeah. Wow. We could have a long conversation. Uh, speculating on the how of that right i mean do we do we go back to go forward is there a way to leap from i mean there are just so many different things that could come to mind from that i i am curious though on, on one thing um you said earlier that you no longer use the term racial reconciliation yes. explain that for us oh i'm so glad you asked <laughs> so for me and and for a lot of people of color as well um the term racial reconciliation has done a massive amount of damage. Um, And it's not just the term, it's the whole narrative behind it. So first of all, it's a false narrative. There is no racial reconciliation because there was never racial conciliation. There you go. Yeah. So to reconcile something means you're trying to return to a state of harmony that once was. What never harmony with regard to race Hmm. in this country or many countries around the world. Any country with a history of colonizing, um, there is not generally any history of harmony um, interracially. So that is the foundation right there of how the narrative of racial reconciliation is a false narrative. Secondly, what that narrative has, how it has functioned, how it has functioned in um, mainstream Western Christianity has been um we we all need to come into relationship be kind to each other maybe maybe have some hard conversations and forgive maybe if we're lucky a white folk might actually ask for forgiveness and a person of color or people of color might extend forgiveness and then we might even have some tears and then the white person goes away to their two garage three car, four bedroom home, and the people of color go back to East Oakland, El Barrio. And we call that reconciliation? Hmm. Absolutely not. And racial reconciliation normalized that. It normalized that. And in so doing, it essentially um, silenced people of color who should have had the most prominent voices in the conversation. It has silenced us. And it has created a culture where um, speaking up for justice is regarded as sin because it, quote, unquote, brings division. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is the antithesis. And and I think a a prime misnomer with this term racial reconciliation is that the word reconciliation was a theological term long before it was a sociological term. Right. Right. So if we're talking about humanity in general, yes, reconciliation, because we started in harmony. Genesis one. We started in harmony, trying to return to that as humanity. 
um, that is reconciliation in terms of with humanity. Um, but there is no reconciliation with regard to race. There is only conciliation. There is only seeking justice and healing. The, the problem is the narrative of racial reconciliation has been a narrative void of justice. Yeah. Well, thank thank you, thank you for that perspective and sharing that. Uh, it's really it's really powerful, and I know that that was one of the themes that um, that we discovered and and learned a lot more about in the Jesus and Justice cohort. So, tell us about that and how that's giving life to you, but how it's um, giving life to others and transforming folks. Yeah. So in the, in the year and a half after I came back from South Africa, I, I really um, just, my brain was processing uh, these 10 years that I spent overseas. And then, um, and given what was happening at the time, this was still during the Trump era when I came back from, from South Africa um, and coming back in some ways to a very different nation and, and realizing that I have had a very unique experience in that I have lived as two different races for oh. long stretches of my life, um, which is very unusual. Um, and so I, I started taking inventory, looking back over the 20 plus years, um, 25 years that I had been doing frontline work around justice and gospel and race. Um, and just sifting, like of all those years doing this work, what are the things that I have found to be necessities to bring real change? And as I sifted and sifted and sifted, that is how the 10-week course Jesus and Justice came about. Um, and so those those several things that that I sifted down to were, number one, a justice-centered theology, because the biblical narrative of scripture is justice-centered. Um, so, so Jesus and justice centers, um, or it, it integrates a justice-centered theology. Number two, it, um, it integrates the healing of trauma, um, particularly intergenerational collective trauma. Um, and that's because trauma is always present. Um, and we, we react out of our trauma, whether it's ours or even generations before us. And that is a huge reason um, why a lot of efforts toward justice, toward conciliation, um, they fall apart is because we, we haven't done our own work around healing, right? So, so Jesus and justice integrates the justice-centered theology, the, the healing of trauma. In other words, very it's healing-centered. Um, and then third, understanding the history of race um, so that we can uh, dismantle the system in an informed way. And those three things all happen in the context of very authentic, beloved community, which means that relationships come first. As a community, we learn how to, we learn and we practice how to be in relationships in a way that uh, we ongoingly learn to be decolonized. And we learn to be trauma-informed, or I call it neuro-informed now. Um, and that's really what the community is about. I mean, it's, it, it's, in order to be in the community, you have to go through the 10-week course first. Yeah. Um, and that creates a really special space in our community because everyone has been through the process. Um, and so everyone has experienced encountering a God that most of them have never encountered before from Scripture. Um, and they've all experienced being led in a space that is neuro-informed or trauma-informed, um, that is deeply relationally authentic and safe. Um, and we, we as an organization are not 
we're not really about a course, to be honest. We're, we're actually about community, changing, transforming, healing in community so that we can be mobilized to go out and bring real measurable change. Wow, that's great. That's great. And, and we'll put in the show notes as well um, some links for people who might be interested in pursuing that or learning more about it. I'm sorry, um, my my website. So we have a, a, a new website that's under construction still. It's jesusandjustice.global. Um, it's not up yet, but write it down because it will be up soon. Um, for now, you can go to my regular website, which is www.gg, that's G-I-G-I, online.org. Um, there's lots of stuff on there. Um, if you want to go to the landing page of the course, um, it's it's gGonline.org slash Jesus and Justice course. Great. Yeah, and we'll put those we'll put those in the show notes. Gigi, I could talk to you forever. I, here here's what I would like to propose. Can we continue the conversation in in another we'll do another podcast at some point in the future because we're just scratching the surface of of so many things here. Um, would would you be willing to do that at some point? Oh, I'd be honored. I would love it. That would be fantastic. Um, I I want to close with a, a question around, especially as as you've created the Jesus and Justice community. Uh, community is is taking place there for sure. Um, what about communion and mission? Now. <sighs> Like, like, how do those things kind of filter their way in? I, I know for me, having gone through it, um, mission takes on a whole nother meaning. I think we have a very Western, frankly, white way of kind of understanding what mission is. And, yeah. and I know our organization for a long time has been trying to redefine uh, what that means. We, we, we don't call our folks missionaries anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I have a whole article about why we don't call them missionaries. But I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, in one sense, we think of that classic old word mission as simply being outward focused. Yeah. Right. You you can only do that when you're embedded in community. So that comes first. Yeah. And then you can only be led uh, by the true needs of a community if you're led by the Holy Spirit. So that's yeah. where communion comes in. And then your eyes get open to look outward. Yes. Right. So, so tell me how those things kind of fit into a, a number of things. I mean, the work you're doing, even the communities you find yourselves yourself in right now, um, and Jesus and justice. Yeah. Well, the, the first thing with regard to mission, um, for, for us in our community, mission is first and foremost, a way of being Good. before it's ever a way of doing right. It is first and foremost a way of being. Um, and really, that's rooted in Genesis 1, um, in that we are all image bearers. All of us are equally made in the image of our creator, um, which means that all of us inherently <clears throat> have dignity. Um, and when when we, we um, it is very difficult, I would argue maybe even impossible, to reflect back to others their full dignity when we haven't embraced our own. Hmm. And the thing about race is that it dehumanizes all of us, including white folks. It just does it in a different way. And so our own personal dignity, sense of dignity has to be restored. Um, and that happens best in relationship, in community, while we do our own work, but we do it in community. Um, 
So it's it's deeply relationally centered. Um, and and it's being before it's doing. Our doing is an outflow of of who we be, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in terms of communion, um, I think the way you put it is is beautiful. Um, communion with the Holy Spirit, who who has who has promised um, to be our deposit, you know, our of our inheritance that that lives inside of us. So we are in constant fellowship and the companioning Hmm. of God because his, his, um, God's spirit is alive within us. Right. Um, and that companioning of spirit that is alive in us, it hungers to connect with spirit that is alive in our neighbor. And so loving our neighbor is not just about our neighbor. Hello, somebody. Yeah. Loving our neighbor is about ourselves too. Um, I, I mean that in a in a holistic sense, in the sense that um, Genesis one tells us it's it's a it's a perfect picture of shalom. It tells us that we are deeply interconnected with all of creation. So um, whether I like you or not, we are deeply connected. And and one way that we know that is through neuroscience. It's actually absolutely fascinating. And I I I've been diving deep into this through my doctorate. Um, but our nervous systems, just by sitting here engaging, even though we're not even in the same room, just by sitting here engaging, your nervous system and my ner- nervous system are tethered to each other. And they are interacting with each other, literally co-creating this space. Yeah. I think that is a beautiful physiological picture of how Holy Spirit, who is deeply entwined and um, even of one per, per personhood with creator makes us deeply entwined with each other. So loving our neighbor is loving ourselves, which I believe is a big part of the reason why, you know, the 10, Ten commandments, it doesn't just say love your neighbor. <laughs> it says love your neighbor as yourself. Right. We are all deeply interconnected. Yeah, that's great. Well, see, now we can talk about spiral dynamics next time. We, we... <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> we get together. Oh, Gigi, this has been such a joy. And I, I feel like I'm cutting it off. But uh, for the sake of of time for the audience, I think we'll do that at this point. Are there any other uh, projects or, or things you're working on that you'd like to let people know about? Great question. Um, well, I will be, um, once I finish my dissertation, which is almost done, um, I will be moving toward publishing after that. Um, and really, it the whole heart and soul of it, um, which really is, we talk about mission, it is the purpose of who I am in a lot of ways and my mission in the world um, really is around creating community. It's creating beloved community that is a reflection of our brown-skinned healer, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, So creating community where people heal deeply and from that place of healing can get mobilized and go change, like bring real change. Um, and using both science and scripture um, to demonstrate how that is exactly what God designed. Um, so keep your eyes out for um, news of, of future publications around that. Um, there is also, um, I recently designed two um, online courses that are open to the public, um, and they are for a project called Black Faith and HIV. 
Mm. So a lot of the work I did in South Africa was um, around HIV and AIDS, um, both hands-on as well as educational. Um, so you can look that up online. Um, there's there's two courses, Biblical Social Justice and then Trauma-Informed Leadership, um, where you can you can find just nuggets of gold for, for building community and really knowing the God who loves justice. And those aren't my words. Those are from the prophet Isaiah. There we go. <laughs> oh, uh, and if people, if people want to reach out to me, my email, reach out, R-E-A-C-H-O-U-T at G-I-G-I online.org. Um, Instagram is Jesus and Justice. Facebook is G-G. Kanyezi, K-H-A-N, like Nancy, Y-E-Z-I. Perfect. Well, little G, it's an honor, always an honor to hang out with you and and see what you're up to. And it just makes my heart so full uh, to see the life that uh, that you're living and engaging in and um, being dedicated to the work that God's called you to. Hmm. Amen. It's such an honor to be here with you guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll connect up again really soon. Okay. Sounds good. I look forward to it. All right, folks, you have been listening to the Communitas podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love to get a review. We are available on all the major podcast platforms, and we look forward to being back with you again uh, with another excellent guest in the near future.